The Apostle Paul said, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Anna Mae Penica was 62 years old when they cured her. She was born with congenital blindness, means she's never seen anything. Never seen a sunset, never seen a flower, never seen the grass, never seen anything she's eaten, never seen the place where she lived, not a single friend's face has never even seen her husband. She met her husband when she was 47 years old in Braille class. His name was Sandy. They fell in love and got married, and for five years he became the eyes for both of them. Then after five years of marriage, Sandy developed retinitis pigmentosa, and he lost his own vision. Now the two of them, Anna Mae and Sandy, lived together for 10 more years in total silent blindness. Then one day, Dr. Thomas Pettit, an eye surgeon at the Jules Stein Eye Institute out of UCLA, hears about Anna Mae's condition. <clears throat> he knows that there have been procedures in the medical field since the 1950s that can change her destiny. So he volunteers to do a surgery. First, he removes the cataract on the left eye, performs the surgery, and then a day or two later when they take the bandage off, Anna Mae can see out of her left eye for the first time. So they go for the right. Perform the same procedure, and a day or two later when they take the bandage off, Anna Mae can now see out of both eyes a world of bewildering shapes and sizes. She says, everything is much bigger and brighter than I ever imagined. She has no idea. Even though Anna Mae has felt with her fingers, she has never seen with her eyes, and so she has only apprehended the world as an infant does, through touch. But they tell us about 12 months old, about the time you turned a year, you went through a transformation from apprehending the world primarily by touch to apprehending it by sight. And when that happens, a world of bewildering shapes and sizes confronts you. You have no idea the distance. You have no idea the size, the proportion, the speed, the movement of things. You can look at something, but you can't say what it is. You have no recognition. So the first thing to learn is that even though your eyes have been opened, it doesn't mean you can see. Seeing is a skill that comes later. It would take almost a month before Anna Mae could identify by sight the difference between a circle and a square. It would take two months before she could, by sight, tell you when something was rough or smooth, close or far. You understand you have words for these things. You understand the concept of these things, but you never know what they look like because you've never seen them before. It would take almost four months before she could recognize her closest friend's face from somebody else's. 
They asked a 16-year-old blind girl how large her mother was. <laughs> Careful. She put her index fingers about this far apart. They asked how big was the sun. She thought it was the size of a dime. How would you know? All of that is closed off to you. Isaiah, I think, is the first guy that told us that we had a problem with blindness. Nobody believed him. You might remember the day Isaiah was called in Isaiah chapter 6. That great story ended when Isaiah said to the Lord, Here am I, send me. You know what the Lord said back to him in the same verse? He said, Go and tell the people that they are ever hearing but never understanding. Wait for it, ever seeing but never perceiving. Translated, tell my people that they can look right at something and not know what it is. Tell them their eyes can be opened, but that doesn't mean that they can see. It turns out that this is a pretty dominant metaphor in Isaiah's works. He uses it 12 times in his 66 chapters to describe the condition of his people. He'll say in Isaiah chapter 29 that their problem is self-induced. They refused to see what was right in front of them. And even though somebody was talking right at them and saying it in plain language, they would not hear it. So listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter 29. Go and tell my people that I, the Lord, will seal their eyes shut. I, the Lord, will put them into a deep sleep so their prophets will read a scroll and it will seem to them only words. We learn from Isaiah chapter 53 that when a person is blind, they grope like a man along a wall. They live in the midst of activity where things are always happening but they're oblivious to it. He tells us when someone is blind, they will look right at something, and because they believe it is unimportant, it's not significant, it's not worth noticing, it's boring, they won't pay attention. And when they don't pay attention, it'll be easier to miss it the second time which will make it easier to miss it the third time. We learn from Isaiah that there is a downward spiral of blindness, just as there is an upward spiral of seeing again. Isaiah tells us that this will change one day when the Lord himself will send a prophet. He will send a teacher, someone who is just like us, and when he comes... He will open the eyes of the blind. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 7 says, I the Lord will free the captives. I will open the eyes of the blind. I will release from their darkness those who are trapped in their dungeons. So when we get into the New Testament... We understand why Jesus started opening eyes. 
What we miss is that this is not just one thing that Jesus does. It is one of the main things that Jesus does. On the day he went into the synagogue and announced his Messiahship, he unrolled a scroll and read from Isaiah chapter 61. And this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to recover sight for the blind, but you look in Isaiah chapter 61 and those words are not in there. He inserted those words himself in order to say, this is one of the signature moves the Messiah will make. And so when John the Baptist is in prison and he's wondering whether Jesus is the one, he sends two messengers to see Jesus. And they go to see Jesus one day and they say, John, John has been preaching about the Messiah for all this time and now he's in prison and he's having a crisis of faith and he wants to know whether you're the one or should we wait for somebody else. Listen to what Jesus says. Go back and tell John, this is what you have seen and this is what you have heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, and the gospel is preached to all the poor. Go back and tell John that you have seen these things, and you have heard these things, and blessed is the man who is not turned away on account of me. You see what it is? In the, in, at the very beginning of Jesus's announcement, he makes the healing of blindness one of the signature things that he will do. So last week, I started talking about how we can recover from our blindness. If you weren't here last week, well, you can watch it. I'm going to give you a real fast review on this. We said there were four levels to a person coming back from blindness. There are people that I know and you know that they can see something and they won't believe it. These are skeptics. You put the evidence right in front of them and they refuse to accept it. Then there are people like scientists or scholars who see something and they do believe it. But then there's people like Thomas where Jesus said, blessed are those who believe what they have not seen. And then at the top, there are people who believe something, and because they believe it, they do see it. Sometimes when I point this out, people will always ask, "Is can you prove this? Is this somewhere in the Bible? Is there a verse for this? And the truth is, there's not. But this is a way of reading the Bible. Let me give you an example. After Jesus comes back from the dead in the resurrection, I see all four instances. At the first level, I see soldiers who were there in Matthew chapter 28, the earthquake knocked them unconscious. And when they woke up, the stone was rolled away and the body was gone. If anybody should have known that there was conclusive evidence for at least a supernatural moment, it would have been the soldiers. But the moment they awake from their stupor, they promptly go into the chief priest's office and say, he is not alive. The disciples stole the body. There they have it. They have the evidence right in front of them. And with all of the evidence, more evidence than the disciples ever had, they refused to accept it as a 
possible explanation. They see the evidence, but they refuse to believe the evidence. Right above them are the disciples themselves. They can't believe that Jesus would come back from the dead, even though he told them about 10 times. And then when they go into a room and he is there, they see him and they touch him. And when they touch him, they believe. And then there's Thomas. Jesus said to Thomas, you're too much like the disciples. You want to see and touch and prove empirically that something is true. And then when you can prove it with your mind, you want to believe it, Thomas. It would have been far better for you if you just could have believed what you were told. Thomas, you are not in a position to know everything. It would have been so much easier for you, better for you, if you could have received on authority. The same place you have just reasoned to. And then there are the disciples on the road to Emmaus. In the middle of their journey, Jesus walks right up and starts walking alongside of them. We are told three times that they are kept from recognizing him. It's in Luke chapter 24. They're having a conversation with Jesus of Nazareth, and they don't know it's him. Then one night when he tears the bread in half, it says their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. We have Mary going to the tomb after the resurrection. She sees two angels, and she says, if you have taken the body, tell me where you put it. And when she said it, she turned away, and there was Jesus right in front of her. And he said, woman, who is it you are looking for? Mistaking him for the gardener. She says, sir, if you have taken his body, tell me where it is, and I will go get it. And Jesus just said, Mary. And when he said it, she recognized the voice. And she said, oh, teacher, you see it? In both instances, they're looking right at him. Now, you can argue that his post-resurrection appearance was different from his pre-resurrection appearance, and you might be right. You might not be, but you might be. But the fact of the matter is, they were looking right at him both times, and they did not recognize him. Note to self, you can look right at something and never see it. Note to self, even when it seems to you that Jesus is not in the room, he can still be in the room. Even when you think he is far away, he can be right in front of you, but you never know it. Having your eyes opened so you can see all that is happening, not just some of it, is this shift from seen to unseen. Are you still with me? We're just warming up. In John chapter 9, Jesus tells a story about a man born blind. One of my favorite stories in the Bible Truth is, Jesus cured blindness maybe half a dozen times, 
And each time he does it, it takes six or seven verses to tell the story. But in John 9, he takes all 41. It's the longest version of healing of the blind of any account in the gospel. So I'm going to spend the next few weeks talking about John 9. I'll give you an overview today. What I'd love for you to do is to go home and open John 9 and read through it slowly. And every time you come across something that you've never seen before, circle it in your Bible or write the verse down and make a note to yourself. I'm going to put all 41 verses of John 9 on the wall in the atrium if the trustees will let me. I'm going to ask you to come in week after week when you make a discovery you've never seen before. Go over to that wall, circle that verse, write two sentences about what you notice. Now, if you're one of them scholars, I'm just saying two sentences in English, not Coptic. Try to limit yourself to only two observations. Remember, everybody wants to play. So let me give you the first one. Right from the beginning in John chapter 9, we are told that the man who was blind was born that way. It is a congenital disease. You might say it was inherited. It was original. He's never seen a sunset, never seen the grass, never seen a flower, never the face of a loved one. And as the disciples are wandering by that day, one of them looks at the blind man begging in his normal place and says, Jesus, which one sinned, him or his parents? They got this all figured out, don't they? Jesus said, neither one sinned. Now wait for the language. He said, this has occurred so that the works of God might be made manifest in this man's life. Let me translate that. This has occurred so that I might do in small what I am doing in letters too large for anyone to see all over the world. The reason this man is blind is because I'm about to do something for him that I am doing for all of humanity. And then without further ado, Jesus bends down and spits into the dirt, takes his finger and stirs up some mud, takes the mud and puts it over the top of the man's eyes and says to the man, now stumble on over there and wash yourself in a pool called scent. So the blind man, not knowing quite where he's going, he has help, I'm assuming. He goes into the pool, he washes his face, and as soon as the water washes the mud out of his eyes, he looks and sees everything is bigger and brighter and more beautiful than he ever imagined. It's the first time he could see. He comes back to the village that he lived in and all of his friends are there. And one of them says, isn't this the guy that used to sit and beg every day? And some of them said, no, no, it just looks like him. And other ones said, no, I think this is the guy. And the man kept saying again and again, I am the man. I am the man. And then one of his friends asks him a question that will occur five times in this chapter. 
How then did he open your eyes? How did he help you see? It turns out that this question, how is it that you who were blind were made to see, is the predominant question in the entire chapter. It's what everybody wants to know. How did someone make you so you could see again? The man says, he just put mud on my eyes. He told me to wash. I washed my face and I came home seeing. And his friends said to themselves, we can't make sense of this. Let's go ask the Pharisees. They know everything. And so they brought him before the Pharisees. And the Pharisees put him up front and said, tell us what happened to you. The man said, I don't know, man. This man, he put mud on my eyes. He told me to wash. And when I did, I came back seeing. And some of the Pharisees said, well, well, well we know that this can't be of God because you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. What do you say about this man? The man says, he's a prophet. Well, the Pharisees don't know what to do with him, so they call in his parents and they say, is this your son? Yeah. Was he born blind? Yep. Well, then tell us, they say, how is it that he was blind can now see? And the parents wait for the language, not wanting to be thrown out of the synagogue. The Jews had already decided that anyone who confessed Jesus as Lord would be thrown out of the synagogue. How is it this son of yours who was blind can now see they looked at themselves and thought mm. they are caught in between their son and their religion don't misinterpret this they're not afraid of the pharisees they're afraid of losing the only religion they have one misstep here and you are a man without a religion so they say He's old enough. Why don't you ask him? <laughs> yeah, they throw him under the bus, sort of. So the Pharisees call the man back in again. And they say, give glory to God, which is sort of their way of saying, raise your right hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Give glory to God, they say. Wait for it. We know that this man is a sinner. We've established that. So tell us, how did he open your eyes? The man is bewildered. He said, I did tell you, but you would not listen. Do you want to hear it again? Do you guys want to be his disciples too? <laughs> not the thing to say to the intelligentsia. Now, they are breathing fire. And they said, you listen to us. You were this man's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. The man says, well, now that is remarkable. Because we know that God does not listen to sinful people. He only listens to people who serve him. If this man were not of God, he could not have opened my eyes.
And the disciples, now even matter, say, you listen to us. You were steeped in sin at birth. Ah. Remember, that's what the disciples were asking at the beginning of the story. Jesus, who sinned? Him or his parents? And the intelligentsia has it all figured out. We know that this man is a sinner, and we know that you were steeped in sin at birth, and that's why you can't see. How dare you to lecture us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. Now wait for it. A couple days later, Jesus hears that the man has just been kicked out of his own religion. Wait for the language. It says, and when Jesus found him, mm, mm, that must have meant he went looking for him. Jesus heard that the man got kicked out of his own tradition, his own assumptions, and he went looking for him. And when he found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man said to Jesus, sir, tell me who he is so I may believe. This is not a skeptic looking for a reason not to believe. This is a doubter looking for a reason to believe. Sir, tell me who he is so that I may believe. Now listen to Jesus' words. Jesus said, you have seen him. <laughs> and the one speaking to you right now is he. And the man said, oh man, I believe. And he fell down and he worshiped him. And while the man was in front of Jesus' feet, Jesus turns and makes the most shocking statement I think I have read in this story. He says aloud, the Son of Man has come that the blind may see and that the seeing may be made blind. Did he just say what I thought he said? The Son of Man has come so that people who are blind can see. And those who think they can see will be blind. Well, one of the Pharisees overhears this statement. And so he says aloud, surely we are not blind. Are we? Wait for it. Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of your sin. But because you say you can see, your sin remains. <sighs> All at once, at the end of the story, it occurs to you, everybody's predicament is exactly the opposite. The man who started blind can see, and the Pharisees who were sure they could see are blind. And people, when I read this story, 
My knees got weak. I started to wonder, is it possible for someone to become so comfortable in their religion, even their Christian religion, that they can no longer see it? Is it possible to be so sure that you can see only to learn that you are blind? Note to self, maybe whatever predicament we think we have, we actually have the other one. If we think we are blind, we are starting to see. If we think we can see, we are to that degree blind. If we think we are full, we are empty. But if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we will then be full. If we think we have already arrived, we are still in bed. But if we confess that we have just begun, we are starting to move forward. If we say we have no sin, our sin remains. But when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe my religion, even my Christianity, is not helping me to find Jesus. Maybe it is keeping me from Jesus because I am trapped inside of the code, the system, the rules, the way things work as it was explained to me. And I sometimes cannot see what is clearly in front of me. My problem is assumptions. My problem is my assumptions. The Jews assumed that it was somebody else. The Pharisees were assuming that this man was a sinner. The Pharisees were assuming that because it was, quote, wrong to heal on the Sabbath. Where is that in the Old Testament? I can find it in all of their teachings about the Old Testament, but I cannot find it in the Old Testament, which is why Jesus <laughs> healed so much on the Sabbath. Your assumptions are what get you in trouble. Are you still with me? We're almost done. Hang on. It's getting quieter out there. Are you just faking or are you still tracking? In 1982, Barry Marshall, an Australian physician, discovered what he thought was the cure for stomach ulcers. When I was a kid back in the 1800s, it was believed that stomach ulcers were the result of stress, gastritis, they called it. And so typically, a treatment was to surgically remove a third of the stomach. But in 1982, Barry Marshall discovered that it was an infection, Helicobacter pylori. Did I pronounce that right? It was an infection that causes stomach ulcers. 
It wasn't just that stomach ulcers caused infections. It was that infections caused stomach ulcers. And so the way to treat it would be with antibiotics. You don't cut away a third of the stomach. You give them antibiotics and have a steak. He was immediately ostracized by the medical profession, breaking every rule and assumption they had. Until in 2005, he was awarded the Nobel Prize. They thought they should take him seriously. In his acceptance speech to receive the Nobel Prize, Barry Marshall quoted, quoted the historian Daniel Borston when he said, The chief obstacle to knowledge is not ignorance. It is the assumption of knowledge. Think hard about that. Because when you finish your degree and you go on for postgraduate work and you study real hard, you will have just learned the vocabulary. The moment you think you know something, you can never learn it. And so you move on. And everything around it is lost to you. This is the Pharisee's problem. We live in a day, church, when we, the practicing Christians of the church, are steeped in other assumptions. Charles Taylor has written that all of us are secular even the religious ones. We're secular because the way that we apprehend the world is primarily through secular mind. We believe, even the Christians in the room, that the world is largely disenchanted. There are no gods or goddesses, or if there were, they exist only in your mind. They cannot play upon life, and they cannot play upon you. Your life and your outcome will be predominantly what you make it. You are the master of your fate. Anything that has empirical proof to it is moved to the center. Anything with belief or faith is then moved to the margins. It is less real and less palpable. In this bifurcated world, we live split personalities. At work, we must drive the numbers and get the profits and show the results. But in church, we say things that are less and less touching the real world. It's okay for me to believe in God as long as I pull him into my world. But now that the world has been split, most of my attention is not given to the study of God. It is given to the study of me. It is not his obligations I'm concerned about. It's more my freedoms and my privileges. Transformation is impossible. It's even unnecessary. Since it would require a standard and a help outside of oneself. This... <laughs> is not the world's perspective. No, no. 
This is what I hear in the church. I want to stand that on its head in three minutes. I'll prove it later. Everything I just told you about this world can be shredded with the very logic that the world approves. There are contradictions laced all over that. I'll spare you the rigmarole. Here's three things I want you to remember as a practicing Christian. One, Jesus is present even when it seems he is absent. He can be right in front of you and you never know it. In the meeting, in the room, talking through people and you mistake it for someone else. Two, God is active, making all things new. Even when the same things keep happening. God is all over this universe. And your assumptions tell you he is shut up in his heaven. The scientists are wrong. He is even now bringing the kingdoms of this world into the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Even now, he is doing that in subtle, imperceptible ways in the same meeting you thought just went south in three. The way of Jesus is the way of life. Even when it's hard and unnatural.